So, if you brought a Bible this morning, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter um, 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant today, amen? So, Father God, as everybody's turning to these scriptures, um, Father, we just thank you for giving us uh, the opportunity to gather like this. Not everybody in the world can do this, but we gather freely to worship you, to praise you, to break open your word, to study your word, to get enlightenment from your word. I ask that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive what your Holy Spirit would say to each one of us individually and corporately. Father, we'll be quick to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor for everything that's wrought here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen? In uh, the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. It says in verse 1, then verily, I'm reading from King James, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick. I'm going to skip down to verse 4. Um, and it says, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Therein, uh, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Verse 5, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So earlier this year, I was in Israel in April and I had been studying personally about the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know why, it just kind of came up in my spirit, and I, I wanted to, to know more about it. You know, sometimes God just leads you in certain directions, right, to study things in his word. And so while we were there, um, I thought to myself, we've got this Israeli tour guide. His name's Yaron, I think, and, uh, you know, he, he's born and raised in Israel. I'll ask him. He seems pretty knowledgeable. And um, the, the night before I... Um, I wrote on my journal here, uh, um, let's see if I can find the right place here, the Ark of the Covenant. There we go. So we were two days journey uh, through Israel, and last night I got up at 2 a.m., and uh, I spent the time praying. So I was laying in bed, and I was thinking about the Ark of the Covenant, and there were three things that were significant that were in the Ark. There was the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, uh, there was Aaron's rod that budded, and then there was a jar of manna, which uh, each one of these represents something significant. I'm not sure the meaning of each, but I hope to find out through this journey. So anyway, uh, the next day I was asking Yaron, I said, uh, so what, what makes the ark so valuable? Why, why are people always still looking for the ark? You know, they're still looking for the ark. If you watch it on TV, of course, we've seen the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Everybody wants to find the ark because it's got power or something. I don't know. Um, and so I asked him, I said, so what, why are people looking for the ark? And he just began rattling off all this about there's three things in the ark, you know. And so I thought, okay, this is confirmation, everything he was telling me. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. And uh, the reason the ark is um, important because there are three significant items in the ark. And I know this is the Old Testament, but it has bearing on our life in the present today. But God speaks to us verbally, Right? And he speaks to us visually. How many times did Jesus tell a parable? And as he's telling the parable, he's painting this picture. We hear him verbally, but he's also painting the picture. That's how we learn the best, you know? We hear it, but also we see it. And so in the ark, there was three things. There was the Ten Commandments, right? Within the ark. And they were written by the finger of God. Anybody in here quote the Ten Commandments? I probably couldn't, so I wrote them down. 
The first four are about our relationship with God. This is, what, this is how God wants us to relate to him. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this is God saying, this is how I want you to relate to me. Right? It's significant. The last six are, are about our relationship with one another. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, and thou shalt not covet. So God's saying, this is how I want you to relate to each other. And so this is God's word. And it's significant. You know, because if you read in the Old Testament about how God gave Moses explicit instructions, this is how I want you to um, build this ark. It's made out of acacia wood. I think that's how you pronounce it. And then the whole thing is overlaid with gold. So if nothing else, if people are hunting for the ark, they're looking for it for the value of the gold, right? But I think we've missed it. I think a lot of times we look at the word of God from our perspective and we don't look at the word of God from his perspective, the way he views his word. And so hopefully today we'll be able to see the way that God views his word because it will change the way that we view his word. Amen? But God said, make this ark and everything's gold. The staves that are in the side of it are gold. Inside of the box is gold. The outside of the box is gold. And then create this lid. He calls it the mercy seat. And there are these two cherubim, you know, that are over the top of it. And their wings cover the mercy seat. And God said, put in the box, put in the ark, the Ten Commandments. That's significant. Put them in there. So the Ark of the Covenant, if you look up that word covenant, it's basically a testament. It's a will. Now, my parents have a last will and testament. I have a last will and testament. What's the whole purpose of a last will and testament? There's certain things that you want done, right? And then you have an executor that carries that out. So God is saying to us through this Ark and his covenant, the commandments that are in there, This is what I want done. My word is my will. Would you agree? God's word is his will. If you want to know what his will is, just get in his word, and you'll find out. So who enforces a testament in the will? The executor. But here's the curious thing. Turn in in your Bibles to the, the book of Psalms, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Y'all just hang on. This is going to be good. Nobody shouting yet. Psalm 89, we're going to read verse 34 and verse um, 35. If I can find it here. God says, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. That's the King James. In the New Living Translation, it says this. God says, I have sworn an oath to David, and in my holiness, I cannot lie. In his holiness, God enforces his word. He, he, and we're going to see this. He watches over his word to perform it. His word is significant. And by him demonstrating to make this golden ark and to put his word in there, he's saying something about his word to us. 
And he placed it in this, this uh, place called the Holy of Holies. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, Hebrews 6, verse 13 through 18, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, there's nobody greater than God, he swore by himself. And in verse 18, it says, it's impossible for God to lie. God watches over his word to make sure that it comes to pass. He cannot lie. If he said it, guess what? He's going to do it, right? In Numbers 23, verse 19, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall, not, shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In the New Living Translation, I like the wording. It says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? So let's just, let's just camp on that thought for just a second. What is a lie? Simple definition. I say one thing, but yet I do another, right? Isn't that a lie? Anybody ever lie? Well, we could all raise our hands, right? We've all lied. Doesn't matter if it's a little white lie. It's still a lie, right? God has never lied. It's impossible for God to lie. If God ever said something and did never do it, what would happen? The gears are turning. I can see the smoke. The world as we know it would cease to exist. It would. God is not a liar. He places a lot of value on his word, as we're going to see as we go through this. And he, by him demonstrating this, he's saying something verbally to us, but visually he's saying, create this ark. It's made out of gold, covered with gold. That's very precious. There's no tarnishing there. And put my word inside that ark. And the cool thing is that if you think, if you, if you have this image of the ark you think about it, there's the mercy seat right there between the, the, the wings there. But inside you've got truth, right? You've got the word of God, you've got truth. And above it you have mercy, right? And above that, that's where God appeared. <clears throat> his glory appeared. His presence appeared. Mercy and truth. In the book of Proverbs it says, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. By mercy and truth, Iniquity is purged. And here's the other cool thing. In the Old Testament, they said over and over again, his mercy endures forever. God is good and his mercy endures forever. He constantly talks about his mercy because think about it. His word is like this. Boom! You know, it's, it's not bendable. He doesn't ever violate it. And if there was no mercy, we'd probably all be dead. As a matter of fact, you think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke his word. You can eat anything in the garden except for this one tree. That's the word of God, right? He says, in the day that you do that, you shall surely die. Well, we know the serpent came along and, they, and the serpent 
you know, beguiled them and duped them and, and they, they yielded to the serpent's words and they violated the word of God, which is truth. His word is truth. And it shall not be violated because unrighteousness and God don't dwell together. Iniquity and God don't dwell together. And so God said it, they're going to die. Well, we know that they were driven out of the garden, right? They were driven out of the garden because God's going to watch over his word and he's going to make sure it comes to pass. I said it, it's going to come to pass. We know that they didn't physically die at that moment, right? They didn't just, boom, drop dead. But they died spiritually. Spiritual death, the definition I've heard, is the separation from God. Jesus hanging on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When sin had been placed upon him, the sin of the world had been placed upon him. You can read it in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. God and sin don't exist together. His word is pure. It's, it's unviolated. It's been tested. It's tried and it's true. God's word is precious to him. It's valuable to him because he and his word are one, Right? If he ever violated his word, he wouldn't be God, and we would probably cease to exist. I know this is a little heavy, but this, it's going to get lighter in the end. Just hang on. But we need to see God's word from his vantage point, amen, the way he sees his word. And so... God's word is valuable, and so getting back to Adam and Eve, they didn't die physical, but they died spiritually. There was separation. They were driven out of the garden, and there was a flaming sword put there, and there were cherubims. You know, you, you're talking about the, the, the covering. It says their, their wings covered. If you look up that definition in Hebrew, it means it's like knitting a screen together. It's, it's guarding and protecting. They're protecting what? God's word. God watches over his word. And so if you go over into the book of James chapter one, it talks about that when men are tempted, men and women, human beings are tempted, they're, they're drawn away by their own lust. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth death and it, or sin. And sin, when it has conceived, brings forth death. So sin is incipient death. It's the beginning of death. Adam and Eve sinned. It was the beginning of their death. Does that make sense? Just hang on. So the first thing that's in the ark is the word of God. The second thing in the ark was the golden pot of manna. The golden pot that had manna in it. And if you, if you read on your own in the book of Exodus chapter 16, Exodus 16, you know the Israelites, they had come out of Egypt and they were hungry and they were thirsty. Long story short, God fed them for 40 years manna from heaven. And they called it manna because Literally, manna means, what is this? They didn't know what it is, so they called it manna. What is this? But he fed them manna from heaven for 40 years. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, he gave them specific instructions, you know, in the Old Testament in Exodus. This is how you're going to um, partake of this manna. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1 and 3, it says, Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, 
humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands, whether you would obey his word. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. In the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 4, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is speaking to the devil here. It says in Matthew, chapter 4, verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. In verse 4, but Jesus answered and said, and he's quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So again, God's created this ark, told Moses, build it this way, cover it with gold, put my word in it, and then later on, he says, take this pot, you know, uh, put man in there so that it'll be a memorial for the rest of the, uh, the days of the Israelites. Manna representing what? The word of God, that we live by the word of God. It is our sustenance. We are spiritual beings. We require the word of God in our lives on a daily basis. It doesn't look like too many people in here have missed too many meals. Right? I like breakfast. I like lunch. I like the evening meal, you know? I like snacks in between. Yes, Sam preach. But spiritually, we're probably eh, emaciated because we need to feed on the Word of God on a regular basis. And that word manna, it refers to what God provides for us to live in His preferred will. I'll say that again. Manna refers to what God provides for us to live in his preferred will. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, it says that we're supposed to have transformed minds. How does it get transformed? By reading the word of God. Then we're able to prove what is the perfect will of God. So manna refers to what God provides for us, his word, for us to live in his perfect will, because that's God's desire. He wants us to live in his perfect will. He wanted Adam and Eve to live in his perfect will. But the minute they stepped over and went beyond the word of God, the boundary that he had set, they transgressed and they sinned. And then there was a separation. God looks at his word at a very high level, because he and his word are one. It's just not something that was written down and given to us and you should probably read this. No. The kingdom of God is a word-based kingdom. Everything that we see around us was created by the word of God. You can read it in the book of Hebrews. You can read it in the book of Genesis. You can read it all through the Bible and the Psalms. It says that the worlds that we know, the universe, were created by the word of God. In the book of John, it says there's nothing, John chapter 1, nothing created but what he created it by his word. The word is valuable to God. 
God and his word are one. If he ever violated his word, he wouldn't be God. And he's trying to create this image for us. You need to get this. I highly value and esteem my word. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 138, verse 2, Psalm 138, verse 2, it says, you have magnified your word above all your name. For years I had read that the wrong way. I, you know, you can read things and flip it. And we talked about his name is highly exalted. It is. But the scripture, and I checked this out. Now, some translations you'll read it and it won't read this way. But in the King James and, you know, there, there are Bibles that are word-for-word -word translations and then there are Bibles that are thought-for-thought -thought translation. The closest, as far as I understand, word-for-word -word is the interlinear um, Hebrew and Greek Bible, which I love. It's great. And so I went and I checked that one, and that's the way it's worded. Is that God magnifies his word above all of his name. Because he and his name are word. His, his name and his word are one. I'll get it out. And just think about it. We think about God. We think about Jehovah. We think about the great I am, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Lord of lords, King of kings. His name and his word are associated together. It's untarnished. His word is valuable. And so there was the, the golden pot of manna, which refers to this is God's uh, way of feeding us. We're supposed to live by his word. The third thing that was in there was Aaron's rod that budded. Aaron's rod that budded. Now you can read about it in the book of Numbers chapter 17. Numbers chapter 17. So all these tribes, they begin to murmur and complain like people do sometimes, you know. Well, who do you think you are, Moses and Aaron? You know, and God says, okay, enough of that. We're not going to have any of this undermining going on. We're not going to have any griping, complaining going on. No murmuring. Y'all bring your, your rod, your staff. Each tribe had a staff, you know. Somebody was in charge, and they had this rod. They all bring them. And God tells them, says, you lay them down in the sanctuary there, in front of the ark. So the next day they come back, and only one rod. Now these are just dead sticks. But Aaron's rod blossomed, had flowers, had leaves, it had almonds on it. And that's significant. So it kind of shut everybody up. And God said to Moses, you make sure you take Aaron's rod and keep it in front of the ark. So we've got three things going on here. We've got God's word in the ark, we've got the, the manna in the ark, and we've got Aaron's rod that budded with almonds, which is significant. Because if you look up that word almond in the Hebrew, it's, this is what the Israeli guy told me, the tour guide. He said, oh yeah, I know exactly what that means. It means sheked. It means that I watch over my word to perform it. It means an almond, but it also means to be alert, to be sleepless, hence to be on the lookout, to, be on the lookout, to, to hasten, to watch. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, if you don't mind turning there, Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to see what God's saying to Jeremiah. Now, I know this is a Bible study, and it may be a little deep, but at the end, it's going to be good. 
In Jeremiah chapter one, verse 11, moreover the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Verse 12, then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten, or I will watch over my word to perform it. I will hasten. God is constantly watching over his word to perform it. Why? Because it's all about his integrity. It's all about his integrity. God and his word are one. There's complete soundness in his word. His word is whole. There is no division in it. It is pure. It's been tested. It's been tried. We can live by it. We can stand on it. If he said it, he will do it. Amen? And I think so many times we, myself included, have taken God's word and become mechanical with it. I remember one time when I was pastoring down in Wharton, Texas, you know, we get into these, uh, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible in one year, you know, or whatever, you know, Bible reading programs. And so, I, man, I was determined I'm going to read from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Well, I didn't make it. I don't know how far I got, maybe Numbers, Leviticus, someplace in there. And I'm not joking when I say this. I'm not exaggerating. I became physically nauseated and sick when I would think about going into my prayer time. I couldn't pick it up. And I talked to God about it. I mean, I wouldn't even touch it. I would not touch the word. I was like, I'm a pastor, and I'm sick of it. And God told me, he says, you cannot handle my word mechanically. It is living. It is alive. And it's sharp. And so many times we get into that mode where we, we handle it mechanically. And it's just perfunctory. It's just the duty that we do. No, it's living. It's, it's real. And if it's not real to you, it's, that's because it's not alive to you. Right? It's never died. It's never seen. There is no expiration on this. But you've got the Word of God, the Ten Commandments. You've got the manna, which says that you shall live by my Word. It's what's going to sustain you. And then you've got Aaron's rod, which is God telling us, I will watch over my Word to perform it. If I've said it, I will do it. I will bring it to pass. I don't care if it's 10 weeks, 10 years, or 100 years, or 1,000 years, it will come to pass. God says, I will watch over my word to perform it. So the significance of the ark is that God is telling us, this is how I view my word. This is how I view my word. It is holy. It is holy. Holy. It is holy. He's saying, I sanctify my word. I watch over to perform it. That word sanctify, let me read from my, my journal here. This is from 28th March. Sanctifying leads to integrity or wholeness because that's what in, integrity is. It's wholeness. If something has integrity. It's whole. 
it's sound. And integrity leads to holiness. I'll say that again. Sanctifying something leads to integrity. Integrity leads to holiness. God's word is sanctified. God himself said in the Old Testament, I sanctify myself. To sanctify something, it sounds like a real big word, but it simply means this, to set something apart from something. God sets himself apart from unrighteousness and sets himself apart to righteousness. Amen? Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 17, I sanctify myself. And he says, I sanctify myself for their sakes, God. Because if God quit sanctifying himself, setting himself apart from unrighteousness, he would cease to be God. God is constantly watching over his words and his actions. So Moses sanctified the word of God in the Ark of the Covenant to maintain the integrity of the word of God and then holiness ensued because if you read through the whole story of that, when everything was set up, the tabernacle was set up, they put the Ark in there, the Ark's got the the word of God in it and everything was finished, then all of a sudden God's presence showed up in between the cherubim. And it says they couldn't go into the tabernacle because of the presence of God. They could not stand. And God's hovering over his mercy and his truth. He's constantly maintaining it for your sake and for my sake. We sanctify the word of God in our hearts to maintain the integrity of the word of God which causes us to live holy. I'll say that again. We sanctify or set apart the word of God in our hearts like the psalmist said in 119, Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We sanctify the word of God in our hearts and maintain the integrity of the word of God which causes us to live holy. God has said to us, you be holy because I'm holy. We live holy by maintaining the integrity of God's word in our hearts. Therefore, there's the importance of knowing God's word. You can't sanctify something you don't know anything about, right? When I set something apart, it's with the intent of maintaining its intactness. My wife has this beautiful little curio cabinet. It's got all these little trinkets in it. Everything's glass, crystal. And she puts those things in that curio cabinet to maintain their intactness. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart from the grandchildren. Hallelujah. To keep something intact means this, to keep it untouched by anything that harms. And so God, the the ark is God telling us. It's a visual representation, God telling us. This is the way I view my word. I sanctify it. And you need to understand that his word is holy. It is set apart and he watches over it to perform it. And we shall live by it or else life won't go so well. You know that, and I know that, because every time you violate the word of God, things don't go so well. And here's the cool thing. If you've given your life to Christ, guess who lives inside you? The spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit. You can read the Gospel of John, chapter 14, 15, and 16. It 
talks about the Holy Spirit, that he is the spirit of truth. Jesus says you know him because he lives in you. He is the spirit of truth, and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. And so the word of God that you've put in you, plus the spirit of truth living inside you, every time you violate or begin to think about violating the word of God in your life, you begin to get this, it feels funny, doesn't it? It's like, kind of itchy, scratchy, kind of like, I probably shouldn't do that. I'm going to do it anyway. Then afterwards you go, oh my gosh, why did I do that? God's placed his word in our hearts. And we're supposed to keep doing that. Amen? Is this making any sense? The word, God's word is important to us because God's word is important to him. The word of God is important because it's what we live by, literally. What we live by. We exist on his word. Amen? And the reason I bring this out, and it may have been a little bit deeper or heavier than you expected. It wasn't jumping and shouting, but you need to get this. You need to get this. When you think of the Ark of the Covenant, that was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, guess what? You are the Ark. God's placed his word in your heart. And if we need anything in this day, in this hour that we live, we need a solid moral compass. Amen? We need a solid moral compass in America. We need a solid moral compass in this world. And it comes from the Word of God. The Word of God. You can stand on it. You find scriptures that you're believing God for things, whether it's healing or finances or whatever it may be, salvation. You can stand on God's Word. You can take it to the bank. If you stand on it, you believe it, He will bring it to pass. Amen? He will bring it to pass because he said he would. So today we've talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the way that God views his word. He doesn't take it lightly. So many times we have empty words we throw out there. We throw words, you know, words are containers. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Sometimes we speak this, sometimes we speak that. I didn't really mean that. God's never like that. That's why he is so holy. Because his word is pure. If he said it, he will do it. And we are supposed to feed on his word and get it in us so that we will know his will. And that that is the moral compass that we should live by. Amen? So the significance of the ark is this. It contains the word, the word of God, which is the will of God. It has the man in it, which reminds us that we live by his word, every word that comes out of his mouth. And Aaron's rod that budded means that he watches over it to perform it. If he said it, he will do it. Amen. Did you get anything out of this today? Hallelujah. Where's Pastor David? Is Pastor David in here today? I saw him walking around. He told me earlier in the week, go light. But that's, this is what God put in my heart. The significance of God's word. 
God's word is so holy to him. It's so precious to him. And he, he watches us. He sees what you do with his word. He notices how you handle it. He notices how you speak it out. He notices when you spend time in his word, when you meditate upon his word. He takes all that into account. He notices that. He wants so much for each one of us to live in his will. That's why he sent Jesus, who is the word of God, to die for us. That's why everybody can get Bibles so readily today. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, Father God, I just pray for your people that you're giving them wisdom right now. I pray that you'd extend your hand of blessing and wisdom and peace upon them, that you'd open the eyes of their understanding, that they'd know what is the hope of your calling and the exceeding greatness of your power towards each one of them, that you love them so much that you sent, literally sent the word of God to live for us, to die for us, and to live for us eternally. And because of him, it says in the book of Hebrews, that we can go into the holy of holies, into your presence. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.